And now, a word from our sponsors. The Oyster Recovery Partnership is the nonprofit expert in Chesapeake Bay oyster restoration. The Oyster Recovery Partnership has planted more than 9 billion oysters on 3,000 acres of reef and recycled more than 250 bushels of shell. Everyone benefits from a healthy Chesapeake Bay. Poor water quality and declining habitats can be reversed. Oysters are the answer. Pescavore is packaged in a convenient single serving size with no refrigeration required until after opening. Pescavore is the perfect, healthy, and delicious snack for those on the go. Pescavore, tuna that travels. Hey, what's going on, good people? It's Gardner Douglas, your oyster ninja. I'm here today with Miss Susan, Miss Sue Wicks from uh, Violet Cove Oysters. And uh, I think we're, you're going to be uh, excited about this conversation. I hope you are. Um, thank you guys for tuning in. Um, I'm loving it. I'm loving it. Uh, Sue, how are do, you? Do, do, do. Loving it. <laughs> how are you? It's so great to finally connect face to face. I've been following you on Instagram and obviously we're in the same industry, you know, oyster lovers and, um, People are always saying great things about you. So I'm so excited to be on your podcast and have this combo. It's good to be in great conversation. Yeah. So just tell me a little bit about your oyster farm and um, how you got into it. So, you know, I grew up, my dad was on the water and um, I would go out on the boat with him. And when I was a little girl, I just loved it. It was something, you know, we did as kids and it was... Um, obviously recreational that we were doing it but watching our father do it we knew that um that's how we earned a living and that's how we lived and his love and his respect for the bay and where he worked um was just something that I watched as a child but he also just let us have it as well that here's the bay this is yours and enjoy it and that has stayed with me my entire life. My love of this local Long Island Bay, you know, where I grew up from five or six years old, digging for clams with my dad, even out in the winter, you know, scallops, um, crabbing, whatever it was on the boat with my father in that really basic human occupation of hunter gatherer, you know, um, I loved every part of it. I loved watching my dad just used his wits, his understanding of the environment and all these different things to earn a living. That is part of Long Island heritage that's very diminished now. There's there's few, few real baymen left. And when I grew up, there was just such colorful characters that were independent, self, you know, they made themselves and they worked hard every day. And that type of American, that type of even small business, but doesn't exist. You know, it's so hard to have a job like that, that you're out there doing this thing and um, that you love. And um, for me, it was always so precious, something very, even as a child, I knew there was something magical about it. My father was doing something different than other people's dads and um, the love of nature and the respect of nature um, was always there. Um, and it was majestic for me, though those landscapes, those skies, the, the sea, those smells, 
those are indelible in my memory. My whole life, um, I, I moved through life, obviously, I went, well, not obviously, but I went to college and I was a professional basketball player. I lived in Europe and Asia for almost 20 years. Um, I played professional basketball in Madison Square Garden. And all of this time, all of these great journeys I'm going on, in the back of my head, like my safe space, that place of serenity is always that bay. And in that time, you know, I'm doing all of this, we had a catastrophe here on Long Island with the brown tides. And um, my father was basically, what he had done since he was 12 years old was gone. He moved to North Carolina and did a little oystering and, and clamming down there, but to earn a living in the 80s and early 90s, on Long Island, it was finished. And that is hundreds of years of, you know, even my personal family um, history was gone. You know, that the story there, it would, it would be the first time in 300 years that there wasn't a Wicks family person working on the water when my, my father was the last. And there was something very sad about that. Um, aquaculture was just in the beginning, in the, in the 90s, um, here on Long Island in the early 2000s, and conventional wisdom said that, you know, it couldn't be done. You know, that was it, that oysters are done, clams are done. And um, I retired from basketball, I retired, I sold a company I was running, and I came back to Long Island and my brother said, hey, there's a guy that has an oyster farm right in our hometown. So I called him up, um, asked him all the information about how to be an oyster farmer. And he said, well, come on down and see if you like it. And I got to work on his farm, Great Gun Farm, Paul McCormick, great oysterman here on Long Island. And he said, put in your applications, it's gonna take a minute. So he goes, if you decide to do it or not, get this up rolling. So I did, um, and then took a little, it took a minute, but I got my farm. I started in 2018 and, um, let's all admit that the times have not been easy these last few years. Um, you know, there's lots of stuff going on, but it's been a fantastic journey. It's been one of the highlights, certainly one of these feelings in life, like, oh my gosh, I'm doing what I should be doing. This is, this is magical. This feels great. You're definitely painting a picture of a magical portrait. Like I'm seeing all of, like I'm seeing, you know, growing up as a kid, watching your dad really get hands on with, you know, working the water and working uh, aquaculture and then traveling the world but the whole time in the back of your head, I'm like, you know what? I got my retirement plan. You know, <laughs> and, you and know the but the funny thing is, I don't think there, there wasn't a possibility. I, it lived in nostalgia. It lived in the past. Ooh, it lived right. in a part of it's gone forever. And so, yeah, like it was a safe memory space, yeah. you know, and that it was reborn, a new version, 2.0 aquaculture. We're going to do it a different way. And we're going to try and do it better this time. You know, you can't do it better than Mother Nature, but we're going to do it until she takes back over again. Well, what do you think, um, just from what you knew as a young person and you know now as having your own farm, um, what are the some of the major differences the way your dad did it and the way you're doing it? So my father had, um, and there's a few baymen here. 
I could never learn all of those things that they know, all of the things that are just second nature to them, all the things they just feel in their blood, in their bones, meaning, oh, the wind just shifted. It's time to go home. And you're like, why? And then, you know, five minutes later, you got a thunderstorm on top of you. That's why, you know, um, you can't, you know, there's, here's where clams are. Here's our crabs are. Here's the time of the season that they're coming. Here's where, you know, some people could never find a clam, you know, not even in the clam shop, but these guys just have a nose for it because they understand the bottom of the bay. They understand how the clams, you know, spawn and where the seeds set and where everything. So they just, they know, you know, so all those magical things that they know about how, the life moves, the cycle of life in here and what to take out of the water and what to leave. And that is that is really one of the hallmarks of the Bayman, the small enterprise. And I'm not talking about industrial fishing that's overfished and has no conscience about sustainability. I'm talking about that person that's out there like, I'm going to be here tomorrow and the next day. This clam goes back. These female crabs go back. This you don't touch. This ecosystem we don't dredge on. We don't do these things. All of those things are just built into the DNA of someone that is out there earning a living, one person, just trying to make a day-by-day living. Um, and they don't exist, you know, there's just a few. So all of these things, even boat maintenance, you know, my father would say that and the, um, Howard Pickerel who built my boat said, don't bring this boat to the boat shop. It's your job now to know every part of your boat, to know your boat intimately, because basically when you're out there, it's you and that boat. That's how your safety right there. So those type of things, like who knows, who knew I'm going to be doing small motor mechanics at this stage of my life when I've never changed the oil in my car. And now I have to do these things because it really is, it's not driving a car. When you're in a boat, that is a different situation, especially in the middle of the winter. There is no sea tow. There's no pleasure boats. There's nothing going on. I mean, it's very, you know, you, you're not going to see anybody. You better know how to take care of your boat and take care of yourself. So those being really um, self-sufficient and, and the confidence you get when like, oh, I know how to do that. I can do that. I can do these things. So even for me, who's a very independent woman who lived on her own in Europe and stuff, to go out in the water and trust that you maybe can fix your engine or you understand drifts, currents, that you can you know, at least keep yourself alive. I have a very safe bay. I'm not going out ocean fishing or anything like that, but just those small basic, small things that you have to know. So they had a... Um, they had a different, um, certainly my father and his colleagues had a different um, career path and a different, you know, with my oyster farm, here's my inventory. I need to harvest this many today. With my father, it's like blind going out there. I hope that there's clams. I hope that my um, traps are full. I hope this, and it's, you know, trying to keep that consistent, you know, income to sustain a family. With me, it's like, I have a harvest. I have a log. I know what's out there. It's a more, anything can happen obviously with storms, which we have a lot of, and with diseases, which could happen at any moment, but you kind of have a little bit more, you're managing a farm, which is the next step up, I think from the hunter gatherer, like in the evolution of humans on this planet, it goes from hunter gatherer 
hey, let's farm now. You know, even though it's it's clearly obvious that, you know, you have that guideline or what's out there, um, you know, I'm just now really putting it together. Like when the when the wild fishers or, you know, the people who were really going out there and just hoping and praying that they would come back with something, you know, compared to like, all right, well, we know we have this many oysters in the water and we know yeah. we can go to this lot or, you know, this, wherever. And it's just really now hitting like, wow, that's, that's pressure. <laughs> right. That's <laughs> <Yeah>. pressure. <laughs> wow. So, so I, you... I think about that all the time, you know, and my father, the one thing he told me goes, you go into this business, let me tell you, your buyers, they want consistency. If you say I have this oyster on Thursday, don't call him Thursday morning and say the wind was blowing on Wednesday. I'm sorry. No, it doesn't go. You know, there's like, oh, can I get it to you on um, Friday? No, that like that um, accountability um, showing up. I don't care if it's snowing, raining, the wind is blowing a gale. You have to get your orders in. And that's consistent. That's, you know, that's true across the board that um, you have to be, you have to show up in this business or else you're not going to be in business. You're going to be doing this for fun. So I was thinking back when you um, were talking about working, you know, doing repairs on small motors. Have you ever had any scary moments out on the water? Um, well, my bay is pretty small. Um, I've had, you know, just the frustration of, you know, why did this engine just stall for no reason? And I think everybody that's on the water in the winter knows Sometimes it's cold and the motor is as temperamental as um, the most temperamental thing you can think of. And it just stalls and stops. And then you're like, all right, I'm not going to panic. I'm going to go talk to the motor. I'm going to, you know, tilt it up and tilt it back down, you know, to do something and then turn it over again. And sometimes that's all you have to do. Sometimes it's just the motor's temperamental in the cold. Um, but most of the part, time that's all that's happened you know so far um so so far so good and i'm lucky um again i have a brand new engine mm -hmm. i have you know a really good boat um all of those different things so i know that um i'm in a very good situation with all of those things where i you know i see um there's one guy that eels right in my creek and um, his, uh, his motor goes out. Guess what? This guy can't work until that motor's fixed. And if the mechanic's like, oh, I'm in Florida, you know, um, it, it's February, he's stuck and he's in big trouble. So that's another reason you have to know how to take care of your stuff. So you just see that you see it all around you. And, you know, we're not making a lot of money. This is not a big, you know, enterprise. You're just earning a living. So those type of things, you know, maintaining, taking care of is really the most important um, because you can't afford to miss a week or two weeks well apart. Um, they're telling you, oh, sorry, you know how it is with the supply chain. And yeah, no, I need that part. You know what I mean? That kind of stuff that you're going to come into in this type of business. But I don't have any um, horror stories. I think that, um, you know, when you have um, oyster farmers, if we, if we go sit in a bar with real fishermen that are going out there, 
we don't have those stories. We don't have the 40 foot seas and this happened and, you know, Johnny got blown overboard and I had to die. No, you know, sometimes I forget to bring a power bar in the boat and I get hungry. That's, that's the biggest, you know, tragedy that's happened so far. And even then you're surrounded by oysters, right? <laughs> yeah, like, <laughs> exactly. Um, why is, because you did mention earlier how some people just don't get it. So why is uh, sustainability and climate change and just really um, taking care of the waterways important to you? So, you know, I'm watching you as well, and there's a subtlety in your messaging and what you're doing. And I think that's always, even with my Instagram, it's very subtle. It's presenting this. I love this. And do you love this too? And most people are like, yeah, I love that. And then when we love, we tend to take care of. And that's been my approach. But in my head, I know our future is towards the ocean. And I think Bren Smith um, from Greenways said something like, um, you know, in America once it was like, go west, go west. That's the, un, you know, that's the frontier. And now we've got, that's it. Now it's go to the ocean, go to the ocean. That is our new frontier. And that is um, instead of the fisheries, instead of overfishing, to not treat it like we're hunters, but the ocean can be farmed. And I think that will be our future as we have a larger population as it, um, that needs to be fed. We're gonna have to change the way that we eat. And that ocean is that space. That's where we're going. Um, whether it's, we're gonna start using the, the sugar kelp for plastics, we're gonna use um, biofuel for the sugar kelp. That, that's a possibility, but the food is definitely coming. The greens, the smaller things, we're gonna move away from those big fish that's unsustainable that, you know, by all the numbers that they're saying, these are gonna be depleted and completely gone because some other countries have, that do have less regulations than us are gonna fish them until they're gone and that should be by 2050. So we're not gonna be eating swordfish and tuna any longer, that, that's off the table. We're going to be eating seaweed and sea greens a lot more um, because of the lack of fresh water that it requires. And, we, and obviously these situations, we know about them. And I think it causes people a lot of angst to hear about it. That's why I don't even want to talk about it. But water is an issue. Fresh water, the way that we grow our land vegetables, how much those inputs that they take, including fertilizer and the, you know, the the um, depleting of the nutrients of the soil are creating a situation that's unsustainable. We have to change the way we farm and the ocean is a great way and to cause a, you know, create maybe a loop with the fertilizers where we can take from the ocean um, through the greens to the seaweeds and put it back in the soil. Those things are, it's very exciting to me. It's, it, it's an exciting in the way that I had the nostalgia that was tinged with depression when I would think back to that safe place that I loved as a child that I thought would never exist again, that it could be a working waterfront, that people are earning their livings, that you could see the bounty of mother nature right in front of you, that she was functioning as she should. So that was a miracle place. Now, when I see this, I get very excited because it's not all doom and gloom. It's not like, okay, guys, you know, say your goodbyes because we're all dying. No, 
we're so smart as humans and we have the ability to create solutions and see them. And I, I feel in this moment, we're moving towards that. In a world of such, you know, bad news all the time, for me, it's, it's a very exciting space to exist in this industry that it, it does point to the future, this type of sustainable farming. That's all a very good point. Um, and you are definitely correct about the the subtle posts um, because like, you know, at the end of the day, you know, we do run a business and, you know, it's almost kind of taboo to really speak on issues. You know what I mean? Like you want to, you want to alert and you want to educate people, but also who comes to social media, at least the people who are, I think are following me um, to, to, to hear bad news. And it is bad news. But, you know, it's going to be worse news if we don't do something mm -hmm. about it, you know. So, yeah, I, I still got to do my part and you're doing your part. And, you know, I think all a lot of the shellfish farmers now are more on the educational, um, you know, platform trying to educate people about what they do. And, you know, um, how, how do you think? Well, I, I, in your social media, how do you? How do you try to educate people about what you do in your oysters and your farm and things like that? I really, um, I think that the, um, the visual aspect is impactful. I think when you see that thing, um, just the water, the, the beauty of it, I think it brings people back. We live for the most part, I mean, I live so much of my life um, in urban places, you know, I'm, I'm playing in New York city. And if I played basketball in Europe, I am in a city. We get disconnected from mother nature that way. We get disconnected from our food source. We get disconnected from how the thing is made. You know what I mean? So you forget that this, we live on a living planet. We think that food comes in a package or in a bag of chips or, you know, these things we get disconnected. And I, I, I think I'm trying to present, this is where food comes from. This is food. This is our substance. This is our life. And this planet is alive and it's, it, it's giving us these things. So just to show, oh my gosh, the miracle of what sunshine and water can make. And for me, it's always a miracle, you know? And if I pull up a cage and it happens to have a fish in it um, or a seahorse or even a tropical fish, it's like, oh my gosh, look at this fish. How did this fish get up here? What's going on? You know, different currents, different movements. These birds, you know, if I see them on the shore that weren't here, I mean, the oyster catcher, American oyster catcher was not on Long Island 15 years ago. We had I hadn't seen one my whole life and then they're popping up again. So that kind of thing, like, oh my gosh, here's the change, you know, and some, a lot of it is positive. The Osprey, you know, there's Eagles and those, you know, from my childhood, nothing, you know, from the ways that we were treating mosquitoes or spraying different things, we had killed basically them off and they're reappearing. So every time I see something like that with the, with the um, surprise and joy and love that I see that, I'm, I'm just trying to capture it and share it. I wanna share that because it, it just, um, it's magical to me. It's magical, this simple thing that we're coexisting with 
is happening all around us. And it's just, um, it's life and there's cycles of life out here. And I think as humans, I don't know why we have so many blind spots as to what we are, but we are connected to this planet, you know, and we are connected to our food sources and um, taking care of them is taking care of us. And um, I, I think that's the notion that I always get from it is that this planet is, it's a miracle, the abundance and these things that it's giving us. And um, there's a lot in that to unpack about, you know, social inequities and economic inequities. And um, there's something joyous to me about the sun shining down on all of us and the abundance of food for all of us coming up. And it is for all of us, you know, it does not discriminate. So there's a lot of deep philosophy in the water for me sometimes, and I don't even know what it's saying, but it hits me so hard. And the best thing I can do is just simply, this is gorgeous, no caption. See it for yourself because it's gonna, you're, you have a human brain, we're, we're just blind to what we are. Just keep looking and you're gonna remember, you're gonna remember, you're gonna remember. And I think once we remember, perhaps we start treating one another better with you know a little more fairness we um and start treating our planet a little better and um and really i think that's the key for me you know i i think it is about love respect and um gratitude for this and it starts with that planet it starts you know this gift of a planet we live on that's great um so how would you describe your oysters and uh, how do you grow them? I know some people do cage and bottom, all that kind of stuff. How, how do you, um, how would you describe your oysters as far as salinity and how they're grown and everything? So I know you're the expert in this, <laughs> and I'm the taste. And um, my taste buds are not that refined, to be honest, but I will tell you, I taste in the beginning, and it depends on the time of the year, because we this right now is a, the perfect time for Long Island oysters, Northeast oysters. We have that sweetness there. Still have the briny front. I would say it was medium to high briny um, salinity in the front. And then in the middle, you're going to get a nutty, um, maybe even celery cashew in there, um, a sweet one. And then it's going to finish. It's still finishing right now with like a light seagrass, which is, you know, more, it's stronger in the spring. It's stronger in the summer that finish that of uh, the grassiness, but right now it's still there, but it, it might go down to like a celery salt, you know, that, um, the, um, the seagrass finish. So, so I got to stop you right there. Yeah. You, you talked about your palate not being so refined. <laughs> Come on now, who are, you, who are you kidding here? You just <laughs> broke it all the way down. Come on now. Yeah, but it took me a minute. It takes me a minute. Some people, I've been with um, oyster shuckers um, and they're like, oh, whoa, whoa. They're like, it's coming at them and like bits of information right away. They, they're they not even hesitating. Oh, they're this, 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 this. For me, I'm like, let me have another one. Let me try. Oh, let me focus on the finish now. You know, it's like, it's not... I'm a beginner with that, to be honest. And I'm only saying that because in this industry, there are some experts, you know what I mean? It's like, whoa. Yeah, I do know what you mean, yeah. Yeah. 
So in that, I'll and hopefully I'll always be a beginner, you know, have that beginner's heart. That's great. That's yeah. powerful right there. <laughs> always willing to um, accept change and see change and accept the oysters for what they are and which not what you want them to be. So that's beautiful. Um, so far as like the cages, do you grow yours in cages or are they just out there? Yeah, I have floating cages. Um, they're about three by two feet. We make all of our equipment um, by hand, every single piece, every strap, every clip, every, you know, every part of it. Um, and it's perfect for our area. And I have them on trawl lines that are about 90 feet. I probably have... 27 cages on the line and I put them about five or six feet apart and they just sit out there you know and collect all those nutrients um and I'm right next to an ocean inlet um that comes in with all you know that fresh ocean nutrients and then flushes it all back out we're over freshwater springs which is very unique I'm in a shallow area in front of a um, nature preserve that has some old growth pines and cedars there. And underneath we have those freshwater springs. And I think that's unique about the Violet Cove that you're not getting in a lot of um, Long Island oysters is that strong middle flavor, that cashew, that nuttiness. I think that might be coming from um, those fresh underwater springs. And also the fact that they're in the cages that they're getting rocked around a bit. And that makes that muscle abductor muscle a little stronger than if you sunk them on the bottom and they can just chill down there and they're just, you know, there's not getting the rocking of the sea. So you get that stronger muscle on the ocean, um, on the muscle that gives you um, the sweetness in the winter because of all the glycogen that that muscle, um, you know, keeps inside of itself to get through the hibernation period. So that's another like hallmark of that Violet Cove oyster, that style of, you know, the rocking every day crafted by the tide and influenced by the rocking and the wind and all of those things. In, and in that cage that makes it subtly different than an oyster raised on the bottom. We put them down in the winter from January to March. So they'll spend some time on the bottom. And that's Good. it. We have a really straightforward, simple model that is, and um, every farm on Long Island, we have, you know, I don't know, maybe 20 farmers here mm -hmm. um, that are full-time doing this. And every farm is a little bit different. Everyone has to tweak it a little bit. It's site specific. And right. that's what works. I can walk my entire farm and it's not because I'm tall. It's because <laughs> we're in a great tidal range. Um, and that is unique, you know, when you talk about even the guys in the Baconic, the guys and the girls in the Baconic, they're like, it's treacherous out here. We got some big waves. Some days we're not, you know, you can't go out. And I'm like, oh, that's horrible. I don't know if I would be doing that if I had to lift with the cranes and my boat is, you know, flipping and turning. Mm -hmm. That's not for me at 56 years old. I'm not, you know, I'm not out there trying to um, risk my life every day. I'm waiting around in my little, you know, idyllic space um, in the water, which is cold water, but it's still safe. You know, I feel very safe that it, I have a shallow farm. So um, let's talk about basketball for a little bit. Yeah. Um, so how was it playing professional basketball? 
obviously that it was the passion in my life um for so long i i didn't even think like oh i play basketball i am a basketball player it was that much who i was every waking hour of every day was around basketball to be the best basketball player i could be whether it was sleeping eating um low stress environments you know who you're going to date because you can't have stress in your life like everything was having optimal performance in basketball and becoming the best basketball player i could be i was obsessed as a young girl being a basketball player and it was a very narrow field for women then we just got title nine you know when i was growing up that wasn't even in full effect um mm. that we were getting full funding and things like that but i did get a scholarship to rutgers university you know changed my life got to play for um hall of fame basketball coach um we were in the top 10 the entire time i was there um um we played some great basketball and then from there in a very you know without the WNBA I got to play professional basketball in Europe and Asia for 16 years got to see the world travel everywhere and do the thing that I loved you know in all different places with all different players with all different systems beliefs you know you you think it's just straight up basketball but so if you're in a post communist country like Hungary that just you know broke those players think differently than us and therefore play basketball differently than us. They train different than us. They think different. Who they are is different than us. Uh, playing Japan, how they're committed to the team and to one another is very different. So all these different places change the way that you play basketball. What so was I'm, I'm sorry, yeah, go I'm ahead. Sorry. So in, I, I was just going to ask, like, what was the biggest... Culture An example would be you. in Japan. Um, I think, well, the biggest one is when you get there and it's different. The first initial, you know, one when I went to Italy and the coach said to me, one, we got to um, Sicily and he's doing the pregame speech and he's doing it in Italian and someone's translating. I just got there. But he's saying something like, um, stasera no vinciamo, è impossibile. He said, tonight we're not winning. It's impossible. This is the coach's pregame speech. And I was like, what? <laughs> he goes, but after the game, we're going to have a great dinner here in Sicily, and then we'll go back home. And I was like, what? Anyway, it turns out you can't win in Sicily because... At that time, that team is owned by someone, a person a, a, that belongs to a group that is not going to let those referees determine the game. So we're not winning, even if we win, those referees are not going to let us win. And that the coach accepted that and told us that we were not going to win and don't worry about it. We're going to have a great dinner afterwards. That would never be in America. Everything is like, you got to play your hearts out. You got to give it your all, You no matter what. They were like, listen, here's the situation. We're going to play this game. No one's going to get hurt. We're going to have a good dinner and we're getting on the plane and getting out of here. That was a culture shock. You know, especially, you know, the America is, you got to win. You got to do your best no matter what. And that was like, no, the situation is against us and we're not going against the tide. And it was a different, you know, that's the Italian. Some of it was the Italian style of life. 
don't fight so hard. Americans love to struggle, to fight even in a losing battle. We, you know, we love that. Even, you know, even to be the underdog and to give that great battle. So I'm not gonna hold you long, but I'm just wondering, like, how did you even get the opportunity to to go um to the international professional league? Like that's that's an awesome opportunity, especially you know you were saying like it wasn't that many options back then. All right, so that's awesome. We got to do a part two because this is this is great. This is a great conversation, honestly. I'm enjoying it. Wow. Um, I got one more question, and then I'll and then I'll let you go because I don't want to hold you down, and I got to get back to work. Um, we always got to get back to work, don't we? That's I know, why I right? love that you're doing this podcast, and thank you. Thank you. Um, last question uh, before we get out of here. Matter of fact, I hate to cut a conversation short, but thank you for joining me today. We'll we'll do a part two. Let's thank do a part two. For sure, because it's a lot to unwind. And I got more oyster stuff to ask you. So I mean, you you got a lot. But thank you for joining me. Um just let just let us know um where we can find you on social media and all of that great things all right so we're violet cove oysters on um instagram and that's pretty much where we exist thanks for just spreading a message and being like you know that um foundation for other females to look at see we didn't even touch that so like we got we got oh, it's great deep to talk it's about. deep <laughs> it's deep it's deep for sure like i didn't even touch the questions i wanted really to get into so no i, I love Ooh. it but um until the next <laughs> part two part two okay thank you so much and um i really enjoyed it